Hello, welcome. Today is uh, December the 6th, 2013. Welcome to uh, Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's almost weekly podcast uh, of neuroscientists chatting with each other. Today is a special day because we had a... Now tell me it's not recording. Uh, Today is a special day because we had a symposium today on power law dynamics in the brain and uh, the importance of power law and where they crop up, power laws and where they crop up and what they should mean to neuroscientists. And we had some uh, premier neuroscientists here who work on power law dynamics, and they are here to discuss the issue with us, along with a couple of us uh, UTSA, not power law dynamics people, and one UTSA power law dynamics expert. And uh, so let's just go around the room and introduce everybody. So we'll start with Fidel Santa Maria. Fidel was organizer of this symposium today. Thank you, Charlie. And uh, John Beggs. Hi. <laughs> this is for voice recognition. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> and Larry Abbott. Hello. And Jim Bauer, who's some partly regular on this podcast. Howdy, everyone. <laughs> and me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. <laughs> so, um, Rest of a cold. <laughs> so, um, just to sort of get started, um, I will try to summarize one thing that, as an experimentalist, I took away from this, and that is I'm normally used to looking at really relatively short pieces of data fitting some simple curve like an exponential to that curve, uh, to the data, and noticing that it doesn't fit that great at the right-hand side, and just living with that. And so I got the impression today that I should not live with that, that maybe I should look farther off to the right-hand side of the data, collect it a little longer, and see what's really happening. Um, Is that your recommendation? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. You might have some rare events that are rare, but you shouldn't ignore because they tell you a lot about the system when they happen. In in the case of an earthquake, big earthquakes are rare, but when they happen, you better don't ignore them. So the other thing that I thought I picked up was if I'm looking at these sort of more distant components, so, so when I do my experiment, I'm looking locally in time. I started something, I look very locally in time, and I ignore things that are sort of distant away in time. And uh, Fidel is saying that I should really be thinking about time going back, uh, maybe all the way back to the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the same thing is true in space. I look at things really close in space, or neurons that are near my neuron or in the same part of the brain as my neuron. And there might very well be uh, things that are happening far away that could be seen. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. So, if I could, yes, so this verbal. Yeah. So, I'm dying. The, the whole the whole idea is that <laughs> when you have a power law, it's scale free. So, if you take the average expected value of it, so if you like try to find what's the average length, if you've got some correlation that follows a power law, it goes to infinity, right? It diverges. So, when you're when you have power law dynamics, you have things at all scales that are interacting. So that's all distances, all times, uh, 
you know, so that, that could be a way that the brain communicates, uh, uh, no matter how big it is, and also how it could go back in time and previous history could play a role in determining what decisions you make at any given point. So it won't surprise anyone that the power law people are all physicists, just so you listening know. So I sort of have a question about we. Actually, the, I'm a biologist. Ah, there. No. Yeah. yeah, it depends on how you define your PhD. Where you yeah. Get. Mine was in neuroscience, actually. Well, your entire argument has just <laughs> crumbled. Let's <laughs> ask your question. Take another number. Yeah, just, you, you need to start with a different basis, though. Shame on you. Uh, so anyway, um, right. So the 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 question is this. Um, we talked about earlier. A couple of questions came up about. Uh, how you think about traditional physics subjects like particles and boxes where power laws have been applied to understand you know sort of physics traditional physics problems given you're studying biology okay and one of the interesting things that kept coming up during the conversation which just came up here is the idea that there's some sort of a memory or history built into the process you're looking at and you need to take that, you can take that into account and should take that to, into account to predict current and probably future behavior. Mm -hmm. So my question, which is a very general one, is are there systems in physics, you know, traditional physics, that are like that in the way biology is like that? Or is the application of these tools and this way of thinking about things in biology really getting at something that is really core, fundamentally biological, about the difference between living things and non-living things. I thought I'd start no. with an easy question. The power laws emerge, um, first time people saw um, in modern times anomalous diffusion, which is a power law, was in PN um, um, semiconductors, uh, the Xerox Corporation. They were looking at the currents, and then the electrons were not arriving at the right time. And it's because they're falling into the end. Um, they're being trapped in the holes by uh, uh, distributed um, uh, time, right? And then, then they... So it's really anomalous diffusion, right? Yep, that's how it was uh, discovered in modern times. If you see how pollen moves in more, uh, not just water, I think, um, um, the, the, the first recordings of pollen that in some of those recordings were, were used to determine ground motion, they also follow some power law, if, they, if you don't put them just in water. So, um, so uh, there's some physical behavior that has these power law components, and, and this is the argument that some people in uh, theoretical, uh, in, in outside neurobiology will say, right, once, once you, everything will be a time, uh, 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 an exponential decay in the lab, once you go outside the lab, you, it's very easy to see power laws because you have a heterogeneous this idea that uh, power law is the emerging behavior of the interaction of heterogeneous components. Each one of them can have a time constant. And then so let me ask the other way around. Um, it seems intrinsically in brains that one of the things that brains do is accumulate information about the past to improve performance in the present. Right. So then is the nervous system sort of figured out how to take advantage of this property, this sort of power law property of things, to do this core thing it does? Hmm. 
That I don't know. I, I, I do know that if sometimes it could be used in a very simple adjustment. So let's say you're walking and you step over a log. Your gait is going to change to adjust for that, that perturbation. But the, you can see evidence of that very, very far out, you know, thousands of strides later. So if you, if you look at that, you can see sort of a power law tail. So something simple like that doesn't necessarily mean that the brain is going to take advantage of it. It's just kind of maybe something at one time constant that spills over to another, that spills over to another. Well, let me, and then I'll, I'll be quiet. But one, you guys know I say that a lot. Um, so years ago at a neural networks meeting, I heard a wonderful talk by this guy at MIT who had built a large number of random neural networks. Okay. To ask the following question, how many of them will spontaneously oscillate mm -hmm. or generate oscillatory behavior? And he gave this whole talk, and then at the end, his punchline was, it turns out that 98% of them connected at random do. And therefore, we have to find the 2% that don't so that we can build well-controlled engineered systems because engineers typically don't like things that, that oscillate. Okay. Of course, I still Except for people said, that design musical instruments. Uh, for example, yes. But <clears throat> so the, the I stood up and said, no, it's the wrong thing. I mean, if if these kinds of elements naturally generate these sorts of rhythmic behaviors, then you know the nervous system sort of uses that intrinsic capacity to do something interesting. So I guess my question, it's a very I understand it's a thirty-six thousand foot question, but maybe not answerable. But the question is, looking at the structure of the nervous system, can you see that structure potentially taking advantage of this sort of property of the physical world or certain kinds of systems in the physical world? So that maybe the sense. question could get turned into a question about criticality. I think if you ask us in 99 whether it's a neural network that grows up in a dish, ends up at a critical point. According to what you just said, it's so unlikely that's not going to happen because the balance this network has to achieve has to be so accurate um, that the sloppiness that we still believe is, is ingrained in biological systems is not going to let this happen. But then we did cultures, we let them grow up, and they ended up there most of the time. If they didn't end up there, they either turned epileptic or they just plainly died. So that's an example where, where from an engineering point of view, to, to establish an extremely fine balance seems to be impossible. But then when you actually do the experiment, you realize there are a couple of mechanisms that biology has hidden from us, and we don't understand them at all at this point, that allows networks to do that in the absence of external input, just intrinsically. And then we found it also in, in the whole animal. So earlier today, Dietmar <coughs> explained to us that systems that are on the critical point, that is, they are at the boundary between growing and shrinking, um, are going to show uh, log uh, dynamics. So that's... Um, that's the connection between what we were just talking about, power laws and, uh, and criticality. John made the point that, as well, that uh, seeing power laws don't necessarily, doesn't necessarily tell you that 
consistent Oh, no, is no, it doesn't. Critical. So in a way, that Jim's question, what's the good, what's the use of power law dynamics, uh, kind of breaks down into two things. What's, what's the good of, of criticality? And then maybe what's, what good is there in power law dynamics that aren't associated with it? Yeah. And Dietmar already answered one of those, right? Uh, criticality is good. Well, I just answered that this is what the networks do. They show uh, us. We end up here. But aren't we, aren't we glad that some things stay about the same size and don't go away and don't explode? Right? I mean, that's... Yeah. Right, I, I mean, in terms of uh, what's the name? <coughs> systems engineering, right? Having uh, uh, distributed networks that follow more or less like a power law that guarantees robustness in... Uh, in, in like UPS uh, packaging, right? Like distributing distributing stuff and the internet, right? Or hub, any hub-like uh, scenario. So there's a little bit of uh, efficiency. I mean, there's an argument, at least in engineering, that having the type of networks that that then result in in what we're describing as power laws. Um, are very efficient and robust failure. Even and if they are, they don't distribute, they are not uh, critical. No, I mean it's just an, uh, the, the the model that comes from engineering on how to organize large distributed systems ha is not uh, a grid of servers or or a random network of servers. It has to be something that has um, f failover hubs. Right, and that's how. I mean, I'm not an expert on that, but that's that's kind of the gist of what I have, what I know. Uh, that's how. So you I'm just trying to connect that. So, mm -hmm. so if we, in the, in the, in the way of thinking about multiple time scales, or in this case, spatial scales, mm -hmm. you're thinking about a network that isn't without any structure at all, mm -hmm. and that doesn't just have local structure, right. but has some kind of. Hierarchical structure right. or something like right. that. You can also think about how uh, viruses propagate, right? If you have a completely ne uh, random network, the probability of the virus dying off is, is higher, right? Uh, it is when you have this um, um, uh, uh, scale-free relationships, and that's how humans interact, by the way. Uh, that's when there is this thing called the emergence of the giant cluster in a network, and that's when the virus becomes an epidemic, right? And that's how you can guarantee, the, the, or the virus can guarantee to live, right? Because you, if you infect everybody at the same time, everybody dies, right? So it's yeah. not a good strategy for a virus. Well, that it, sounds a little bit like criticality. The virus is just trying to stay in the right? system of hosts. Uh, they are not without uh, viruses dying out is around, without uh, blowing up. It's around one. Well, they are not. Uh, uh, <laughs> the propagation probability. <laughs> I think the, the idea of criticality, if I could just kind of distinguish it from, from some of the other ideas, you can have a lot of physical processes that have different timescales, and they produce power laws. And in fact, it's hard to get them not to produce power laws, and maybe evolution exploits that. The whole idea of criticality is that your system ordinarily wouldn't produce a power law unless you get this control parameter in just the right range. So this is kind of a, a, a more... Uh, an easier thing to fail. If you don't get your parameter in the right range, then the system isn't critical, it won't produce a power law, and then according to the arguments that Dietmar and I have presented, then it wouldn't be optimal either. So it's not that you have a power law and then exploit it, which you can do, and I think that that's great, 
But you can also, in a different type of way, tune a critical parameter to a power law and then use that for optimality. Now, what that implies is that there's some kind of biological mechanism that brings it to that spot and then keeps it there even when it's being perturbed. And so that's something that is not yet, we don't know whether that exists or not. We don't have an idea. We don't have proof of it. I mean, there's some pilot experiments that suggest that maybe this kind of thing happens. That as, as cultures develop, they kind of go away from the critical point and then uh, they come closer to it as they grow. Uh, but this is a very different idea, that it's, somehow it has to be tuned. It's not just sitting there and then you take advantage of it. So I just wanted to make that distinction. Right, right. But I think that the criticality can be a bit of an artifact of the models. Because what we try to do often is describe a very complicated system by a much simpler model. And in that model, we have to go to very special parameter values to be even in the ballpark. Correct. So, you know, even when you say the culture comes critical, you really mean the model that you use to think about the culture becomes critical. That, that the system may just be of a richness that gives rise to these phenomena without such incredible fine-tuning. But our models, which have typically have a few parameters, then do require fine-tuning to match that. Well, yeah, okay, let me, let me ask you a question. Dima, why don't you talk? I just talk. Right now, we really don't have a model that would be equivalent to a critical mechanism in the brain. All what we see is the phenomenology. And, and we don't know how this comes about. We, we can do quite a, a lot of analysis tricks like scaling operations um, and renormalizations that, that tells us, wow, the phenomenology really extends in time and space uh, beyond what we expected to do. And, and, to, and there are very few alternatives to explain that. Either a rich diversity in many, many, many fundamental constants that describe dynamics in space and time, or the idea of, of a phase transition where the interactions are balanced in such a way that you have, that you have the emergence of long-range correlations. I think these are the two sides that we have to explore. Yeah, and I think one thing I mean I would support your thing is that you know you would say if, if we were really on the edge of a phase transition, then every once in a while we ought to go over the edge. And yeah. epilepsy is a remarkably common phenomenon. Uh, considering it's a severe you know, condition. So I think in that sense, yeah, we probably are pretty close to phase transition on that end. Um, on the dying end, though, there's no syndrome, right, where suddenly propagation fails going across the, the brain that I know of. Spontaneous brain death. Right? <laughs> it would be spontaneous brain death. I, I don't know if any such phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... So, you know, we're, we're on one side, but I don't see the other side of the curve. Well, but there's a low end of the, I don't know, yeah. intelligence curve, right? <laughs> no, the, the, <laughs> That's so, a stable state. It's <laughs> actually, actually okay. interesting that you bring this up because we did experiments where we reduced excitability. And, and what we found that, we, that when, you, when networks that are spontaneously active, when you force them to be less active, they work very hard to become more active. So um, this is not research from our group, but um, what happens is that the overall activity comes down. The neurons fire less often. Because they fire less often, the synaptic efficacy goes up. So suddenly, when there is an event in the network, they become easier synchronized, and then they actually have a global seizure. 
So the overall rate of activity goes down, but suddenly you're more synchronized because you force it to, to so find less often. So maybe you get a seizure in either direction. So you're so saying you get a seizure either way. Exactly. So right. what we found Slick is that ex experiment. <laughs> no, that was yeah. one of the uh, basic um, um, puzzle that we had. We reduced excitability and we saw the bimodal signature that we only see on the disinhibition. So, so the critical dynamics is squished between two quasi-epileptic uh, conditions mm -hmm. that, that, that depend on different mechanisms. One would be synaptic efficacy goes up, the other one is disinhibition. Um, so, so. And, and an, another challenge then would be if you can come up with a model that's not critical that can explain all the data, have at it. You know, I mean, if it really is something that isn't a critical thing, then can you get avalanche shape collapse? And can you get an exponent relation? And can you, you get multiple power laws? And can you show phase transition when you change the balance of excitation and inhibition? So if you can do that, then it explains the data. That's great. But so far, no one's come forward with that. So, you know, it, it's kind of a challenge. I think not only does the phase transition model fit the data, but there is no other alternative at the moment that really does as good a job. Maybe that's the moment to bring up a real disadvantage of criticality, and which is the phenomenon of slowing down. As you uh, come close to a phase transition and you perturb the system, it will take forever to come back. Or you could translate this into, if you want the system to come up with a computational result, when it's close to a phase transition, it might take a long, long time before it can give you an answer. If so the phase transition itself is required for giving an answer. Yeah, if, if you're very close to that phase transition. Yeah. Huh? The closer you come to the phase transition, the longer it will take for the system to come back. And we always thought this is um, very intriguing in a sense. That shouldn't happen. I mean, that's not good. If, if, if the, you, the brain has to respond within a brief period of time, come up with a proper solution to a complex um, situation, that's not what you want to have. And one solution to that might be that you enforce an external temporal framework, and here oscillations might be the answer. That you actually squish the um, computation that the critical system has to do within the cycle of, of an oscillation that is enforced by the system. And, and that's right now our kind of working hypothesis why we always find avalanches with oscillations. It's not that we have ever saw a biological brain system, whether it's a culture, a slice, or, or the whole animal, or in the human, where avalanches exist outside an oscillatory framework. So can you help us to understand what the relationship is between the avalanches and oscillation? Because if I think about a pile of sand and, and a little avalanche, there's no oscillation in my in my movie of that, my mental movie of that, but in the, and so if I apply that image to the brain avalanche, I, I don't get the oscillation in there. Yeah, I think the, the origin of why you would like to have oscillation in the brain is the idea how can two sides in the brain um, work together so that they signal something more complicated. We know that in the cortex, information of different qualities is sitting at different sides. So if you want to encode something like a complex object, object, you might want to get these two sides to do something together. And the idea of an oscillation is that each side oscillates and then they lock together. And that transient phenomenon of locking 
uh, is used by the brain to signal something of importance. So, so the avalanche itself has a different mechanism. It says that site A starts an activity that propagates within a certain with a delay to another site and reaches that other site. And and all what you have to now think of how that comes together is is that the avalanche is like a surfer on a wave front that surfs from site A to site B. And now we have a discussion whether we pay attention to the surfer that uses a wave to do that within a certain period, or whether it's the wave that that carries the information. I'm having trouble with this. Maybe it's because I've never surfed. But <laughs> yeah. I, I'm imagining... One, one, one possible answer that I was imagining you might give would be that the avalanche actually consists of a little uh, a wave envelope that that the that various places have in common and it propagates and incorporates mm-hmm. more neurons and then dies away. Um, that would be that would fit with my sand pile but kind of analogy. That would be equivalent uh, to the surfer. That oh, okay, because okay, the surfer that is the takes the envelope oh, okay, in great. order to do that operation going from A to B in a certain time. Okay. But if you do it, like I mean, the, this is like a pair back paper back then. Um, and actually, I show it in my computational science class. So the idea from that paper on, on self-organized criticality, criticality is like you drop grains of sand in the center of a table, and then when you get more than four grains, you um, move on to the north, south, east, west, right? And then you will think that you will just get like a wave, and you don't you don't get that. You get a like chaotic oscillations. You get a oscillations because then you have collisions between between uh, avalanches from multiple uh, regions, and then you get this very psychedelic uh, uh, movie uh, out of it. It's actually very easy to, to implement. And then you will get, uh, you could probably, if you get, um, uh, you can calculate the frequency component in space, and then you get a one over F uh, relationship. So you, you could get a lot of frequencies out of just implementing avalanches. I wanted to say uh, something else about criticality. Oh, it's quite a bit different thing from what? Isn't it? I just want to make sure those are two really different They're images. different things, yeah. Okay. Go ahead, <laughs> Okay. All right, I just want to say something else about criticality. As, as you know, I talked about networks that were chaotic. So you might say, why chaotic? That sounds like a bad idea if you want a network to do, you know, reliable things. So um, as you pointed out during my talk, Dietmar, and, and what we've been talking about, there's a critical point where special things happen, and that's true in these networks, and it's just the point just where chaos starts. In fact, you know, if you were just a little bit below that, you wouldn't be chaotic. All sorts of nice things would happen. The trouble is that would require very precise tuning, and it would be dynamic tuning because that point moves around. So it turns out that if you ask, well, the special properties, how quickly do they decay away when you go away from the critical point? On the non-chaotic side, they decay very quickly. But on the chaotic side, they decay slowly. So there can be a case where if you miss the critical point, you definitely want to be on one side or the other. And in these networks, you definitely want to be on the chaotic side if you miss, because the price of the chaos is less than what you lose, you know, that you keep mm-hmm. these special properties for, for a longer because time. Because the other side is some kind of stable fixed point? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, that's sort of easier to deal with, but these special properties are in a very narrow band near the critical point, whereas they extend out on the other side. It's, that's interesting because if are you familiar with some of Stuart Kaufman's stuff on random Boolean networks? So he's been working with experimentalists and they've been looking at 
whether these networks are close to chaos or are you know slightly under or slightly over, they claim that they're slightly under, so they're a little bit subcritical. Hmm. And uh, you know maybe if you're doing a genetic network, then that's not so good if you're supercritical. I don't know. There yeah, might there be some different consequence that, you know, if you get supercritical, you get mutations and cancer. Yeah, there that. could be cases where you just can't stand the cancer, so you go right. on the other side. But so in these networks, they work much better. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say one of the impressions that you get if listening to this talk, uh, if you're a regular neuroscientist doing experimentation, is uh, it's a little bit sad because... I do my experiment, I, I get this thing, I end up with the number I get from the curve fit is the power that goes with this power law. And then I ask you guys, hey, I ended up with a power of 1.36. What does that mean? And then, and whereas if, if I just fit an exponential and I get 1.36 seconds or something like that, I can start looking up processes that have already been discovered that have time constants of 1.36 seconds. So is there something like that? If I see a, my, my system obeys a power law and has a certain value of the power, is, is there literature I can look up in and find out what that means or how to connect that to other people's work and uh, how do I interpret that? Can I interpret that? Because well, uh, I need a very cool punchline to sell my paper to the so I, I was going to say this when you started. So, you know, normally you, you do your experiment over a certain amount of time. And even if, you know, you promised at the beginning to do more, but you're still going to stop you know, at some point. Yes. So if you get an exponential, basically you're saying that's all there is. There's nothing out to the right of my data, but I've extracted something and I can tell a story. Sure. The great thing about the power laws, you can extrapolate, right? You can say what happens beyond my experiment. Now, of course, you're guessing. But it's a much better guess. I think that's what we were trying to persuade today, one. And two, it's a much more interesting guess. Because basically, with an exponential, what happens beyond your data is nothing. Whereas in this case, there's a whole other families of phenomena that can happen. So should be should be more so, excited. So, yeah, so definitely, I guess, if I'm going to use the number I extracted from my data to make a model about what's going on, and I could make a model that obeyed a power law, my model would be predictive over a much wider range of times. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So exactly. Physicists have, have come up with lots of universality classes, so-called universality classes, which means if you have a system that obeys power law rules, then these power laws usually have a certain set of exponents, and based on that set, you can assign a certain universality class to it. We were hoping that we could do that for, for our brain data, and when we did this in our first attempt, um, the universality class that came out was none that had been described by physicists so far. So, we so were, there is a big literature I can look up about yeah, universality yeah. class. It's a great name. Yeah. I don't yeah. know exactly so, <laughs> so we were a bit disappointed as well as kind of excited. So if you fall out of the existing classes that are known, you, you, you think twice whether you're wrong. No? Uh, but on the other hand, this is what... what is there right now, and it might be that the brain is in, in a new universality class. What it means is that um, brains from a very kind of different type of design could probably achieve the same type of dynamics. So bird brains who don't have cortex layers, no? 
might operate similarly to mammalian brains or even insect brains when we look at the uh, mushroom bodies that have very complex um, designs might be able to, to set up these dynamics. Yeah, and real quick, the, brand, the critical branching model that has a minus 1.5 exponent for the size distribution, that does map onto directed percolation universality class, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, okay, okay. so totally you must be talking... So there's... So, okay, I, I remember ex explaining this to some people, and, and they said, oh, well, you know, and Jack Cowan says, oh, it's, it's directed percolation. I said, oh, great, what physical systems exhibit directed percolation? And he goes, nothing. So it's one of those things where, you know, it constantly pops up in the literature, you know, minus 1.5 is a number you see a lot, but no one's got a physical instantiation of it. And, you know, if the models are right, maybe... It would what is direct percolation? Uh, so, okay, if you have a grid, and what you can do is you can start to uh, put down little links on the grid between different sites. And let's say you've got you've got little uh, direction in which these things can go. So they're arrows, all right. Now, what you want to do is you want to randomly put these guys down, and at some point, when you have a certain probability of putting down these these little arrows, you're going to have a spanning cluster, a cluster that goes from one edge of your grid all the way to the other. So right at that probability of putting down these little arrows, when you get a spanning cluster, that's what they call percolation. So it's directed because you can follow the arrows from one end to the other. So there's a very particular critical probability that allows you to just get the spanning cluster. Below that, you don't. And above that, you get things that just glom onto it. So that's directed percolation. So if you have a branching model, it's a little bit like that because neurons are activating other neurons in time. There's an arrow, and then it activates others and so forth. And then, you know, the distribution of these things would follow parallel. But, you know, it's still an open question. We don't know. I mean, I think Larry's challenge is a very good one. Can we come up with a model for this? Or, or is all of what we're seeing just a bunch of uh, time constants? I, you know, I... So I should say the, the percolation is for the unfolding of activity within an avalanche. Which is fine. What, what we looked at was, um, can we explain all the avalanche patterns that we see? And, and that was in a different universality class. So, so we have this coexistence of, of classes that, that right now we almost feel like um, biologists who just collect phenomena and we fight over whether the phenomena, the way we describe them, is correct. But we are kind of far away from, from mechanistic insights. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Pretty fun.